This is Glenn Murphy with NC Sistema, and this is Sistema for Life. Welcome back to part two of this discussion on the nature and importance of dexterity. This second half, we discuss how dexterity is built in our brains and bodies and the implications for teaching and training Sistema. Enjoy. So we were talking a little bit about how dexterity is built, right? And how you how you actually train in different ways. So in the book, Bernstein talks compares the way that we learn as humans and learn dexterity as to the, the pathway that animals have learned dexterity, right? What's the origin of any movement throughout the history of all animals on the planet and stuff, right? So it's very deeply scientific. This book draws on a lot of different disciplines of zoology and physiology and neuroscience. Really, really fascinating and highly recommend it. It's, a, it's an early kind of aspirant to the, uh, the popular science genre before there even was one, right? <laughs> when I was a kid, there wasn't really popular science. There was maybe Carl Sagan, right. uh, you know, David Attenborough in the UK or something. And now you go in Barnes & Noble and there's just reams of it, right? And I've written a whole bunch of popular science books myself, so I've benefited from this. Um, but in 1960s Russia, I can't imagine there was a ton of popular science kicking about. But this book was actually commissioned by the, um, by the Department of Physical Education as a way of kind of educating the populace, probably more specifically ed- educating physical uh, training instructors across Russia in schools and things like that on how you build skill um, with a view to making kind of the population stronger um, so they can go on and win Olympic medals but also be strong as people and you know strong in their community and all that kind of stuff as well for the betterment of all of us kind mm-hmm. of in that in communistic sense kind of thing right and he talks about the origin of movements and the simplest thing that you can see right so the simplest movement might be just something like a bacterium right with a little motor on it a little outboard flagellum or something which basically just spins and propels the bacterium forwards or maybe it just squidges around it just you know uh contracts a little bit of its uh kind of pseudopod right a little bit of a kind of a a gel-like arm or something it squidges out and squeezes its way towards something to absorb it or run away from it or something like that and then by the time you get up to something like a worm you have something that can coordinate its contractions its muscle contractions in waves right coordinates these kind of core movements that kind of translate from one end to the other uh, and about that time the mouth became dominant as, a, as the, the head became dominant as the direction you want to be moving in up to that point all animals were pretty much whatever direction you look at them they're the same right uh-huh. they look at sea urchin and a starfish have a basically a bum hole and a, and a mouth in the same place, right? I'm glad we don't have. That would be extremely uh, difficult parties. So, so, um, so by the time you get to things with a, a defined head and a tail, then you have things that propel themselves head first towards things. And then when they meet something bigger, or they feel like they're going to get eaten, that they can turn around and propel themselves the other way, right? Um, of course, by the time you get up to fish, bony fish, or even before that, sharks with cartilaginous skeletons and things, you have something with a massive degree of coordination of its muscles right it's it's it has a limited degree of kind of freedom in that it can kind of bend left and right with its tail and kind of lash itself that way and it can a little bit kind of flex and uh, extend its spine up and down to an extent but doing that it can launch itself out of the water at, you know something about 60 miles an hour and scaring the bejesus out of people who watch jaws movies or or just finding you know uh, attacking seals or whatever it's going to be doing so a shark is enormously maneuverable in its zone and is one of the pinnacles of what you can do as like an aquatic animal really that dolphins i guess but then a new level of dexterity appeared when things started to move on to the land for the first time then you had appendages right you had arms 
or the beginnings of like fins that turned into fleshy lobes, something like a lungfish. And that required a whole new degree of control, right? You're not just kind of flipping your spine around now and your tail around. You're actually having to coordinate the movement of, of two or more limbs with what your spine is doing. And then you work your way up to kind of belly crawling that you see in lizards and reptiles, stuff like that. And then from there to jumping and climbing in quadrupedal animals, things that walk on four feet. And then eventually all the way up to things that kind of wobble around on two feet for short distances like lemurs and, uh, and gorillas and bonobos and stuff like that. All the way up to complex bipedal, like human motion, right? And then from there we can leap, do parkour, start to imitate baboons, evolve backwards again, right? All those things that we want to do. So there's a progression there of how we learn. And what Bernstein points out is that that legacy of how the brain was built bit by bit over evolution. You can see that in how humans learn to move, right? When we're born, we're one of the most helpless animals on the planet. When you see a baby giraffe born, it flops out, and about a minute and a half later, it can stand up, mm -hmm. and it can move off with the herd if they're getting attacked or something, or it can find its mother and start to suckle and get milk. Human babies are next to useless, right? <laughs> they come out, they can barely do anything except kind of flip their spines a little bit and wave their limbs ineffectually in the air. They can't even turn over for the most part, like to face down usually almost certainly can't crawl from birth like extraordinarily rare for that to happen right away um, they can maybe grab a finger after a few days if you poke them in the palm and they can suck if you stick something in their mouth but other than that the motor control is pretty pathetic it's we're the most helpless animals on the planet when we're first born right um, but then within a few months we get this ability to undulate our spines turn ourselves over from face up from supine to face down to prone. Um, and then we start bringing our elbows into it like my little daughter Cora is doing now she, well actually now she's on hands and feet, hands and knees, and they start to coordinate their appendages. They start to coordinate the hands and the knees and crawl first on their bellies and then kind of uh, belly with a little bit of knee and then kind of high knee crawling and then they pull themselves to their feet, start walking, running, jumping, dance, disco, whatever's coming on after Date, that. Dating. Yeah, dating. Oh, don't remind me. <laughs> So yeah, so that pattern of human development follows our evolutionary history as animals, mm. I think, which is, I think is really fascinating, that's the way he puts it out. And so based on this, um, Bernstein talks about different levels, so he'll talk about that worm-like level of dexterity, that first ability just to control the tone around your spine and just tense up or relax with your whole body, that's just being that level A tone. And the next level of uh, muscular articulation, he calls it, is the ability to coordinate tension and relaxation in the body, to tense one arm but relax the other one, to tense both legs but relax both arms, right? And just kind of coordinate things towards a specific goal. The third level that he calls level C or translocation is your ability to use your sense organs and sense the space around you to understand that you're part of a bigger environment and to move yourself through space, backwards, forwards, ducking, squatting, ground engagement, things like that. And only then do you get to the level where you can combine those things and move through three dimensions all at once with complex kind of jumping, twisting, rolling, and combat maneuvers. So that's uh, reminding me of a lot of the warm-up exercises that we do, <laughs> where we're sort of like on our backs, sort of trying to move towards our heads or towards our feet. Um, so I, I had thought of those as sort of like warm-ups. Yeah. Right, just sort of physical warm-ups, you know, they're tiring to build some strength, to get some engagement around muscles we don't necessarily use, but, but you're using it, you're seeing that as the building block of everything else. Yeah, it's critical. It's not a workout, it's a work-on, right? You're working on yourself when you do that. You're figuring out 
in the first instance, those belly crawls, all that kind of stuff. You're figuring out how to just isolate your spine. You're not allowed to use your arms and legs, so you have to figure out, like a worm did all over again, how to use that tone to move yourself around. Even before that, sometimes we'll just lie there, tense the whole body, relax the whole body, isolate tension in certain limbs, things like that. So this is mimicking the way that your brain learns movement and tension, right? Um, and then only after that do we start kind of crawling or walking and practicing kind of how to walk without effort or move in relation to other people. And only then do we start doing something like grab and escape or dodge a knife or dodge a kick or something because they're complex motions. They're complex, difficult motions. Try, you know, launching a slow motion kick at a toddler when they're like you know, one year old or something, they can barely stand up. They're not going to get out of the way, right? It's a difficult motion. They've barely managed controlling their own balance, let alone, um, you know, doing anything else. I'm not advocating kicking toddlers, by the way. I just want to put that straight out in there. But I'm just saying, <laughs> and I try cat on my work. So I guess one question is if this is our sort of, evolutionary history and it's our individual development like why do we suck at it why what what happens to us over time either that we miss some of these stages or that we go backwards or accrete bad habits on top of them why aren't we just all harmonious skillful motor appropriate creatures i guess the simple answer to that is that most of us don't need to be um, or we can get through life with a what's called in Britain a, a satisfactory level of dexterity, right? It's crap, but it will do. Right? Um, we no longer have to kind of jump and swing through trees to catch our dinner. We no longer have to, you know, dodge flying spears and be super dexterous in combat in order to survive the next day and, and get on in life, right? All we have to be able to do is get up, sit at our computer, check some email, walk to another sitting position in the car, drive to work, rinse, repeat, not do very much else, right? Maybe if you're a farmer, as you are, you can put time and stuff as well, then you'll have to build up another set of skills that enable you to dig and uh, plow, right? And, uh -huh. and plant seeds and pull so things this is, up. This is just simply conservation of adequacy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So your your brain and your body will develop precisely to the level that you demand of it. And if you don't make very much many demands of it, then it simply won't bother developing in those ways. You'll lose skills that you have when you're a kid, right? The ability to jump and climb and all those kinds of things will just go away if you don't practice them. It's, it's very much a use it or lose it thing. And it's, it's expensive maintaining these brain connections and these abilities to move your body. And, and it's very expensive to maintain muscles, right? Especially deep muscles in the body. And so your body just reallocates those resources. It's like, well, we'll just use that and pile it on as fat or we'll just use that as extra brain food so that you can get through your eight hour work day on a spreadsheet or you know, whatever it's gonna be, you know? So it's a reallocation of resources. And the other answer to that question is that even if we do need it, sometimes um, we'll acquire other habits that kind of uh, override um, the natural movements that we have, right? So we'll acquire fear-based habits and fear-based flinches, which um, just go back to the full level of kind of tone in that solving the problem is just flinching with your whole body, tensing up the entire body and freezing altogether rather than trying to find a movement solution to something and then hoping that that will work, right? So in the absence of a movement solution, your body always says, well, hide will probably work. <laughs> so if you had enormous great climbing skills and you're in the Serengeti and a lion just emerged from the tall grasses near you, you might attempt to climb a tree very fast. Now, some lions can climb trees fairly well, so again, I would advocate this, but it's possible you could climb faster and, and get up a tree and the lion might not bother with you and might go somewhere else. If you couldn't climb a tree or you knew you couldn't then the only option that would be open to you would be run and right lines can do about 35 40 miles an hour a good clip so probably you're not going to do very well with run or just freeze all right and just hide and hope that the line chases somebody else or mm. <laughs> bypasses you that way right so to freeze is our default reaction when we can't 
we don't have any other options left to us, right? So the more that we train dexterity, the more options beside freeze that we get. The less that we train dexterity, or the more we ignore motor skill, the development of motor skill, physical skill in our bodies, the more our bodies freeze up, become immobile, and become trapped in the kind of casts of our own making. Right, and I guess going going back to the psychological analogs of that, I know you know so many people who just feel frozen. Yeah, like in in life and like avoiding conflict and avoiding anything that will either move them forward or backward. Just like you know, let's just keep our heads down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I don't know if you've noticed this in your time training, but I've, I found that the longer I've spent training and the more time I've spent practicing movement as a response to uh, potential pain or discomfort or some or a strike or something like that, my, my default response now is to try and breathe, to relax and trying to move, right? And, and that translates to your physical, your psychological responses to things. You're more likely to try and come up with a solution than you are just to freeze and stay there and stay trapped in a little comfort bubble. I mean, have you found that? Yeah, a little bit. To an extent. Bit. Uh, I'm, I'm open for more. <laughs> more push-ups. <Yeah>. <laughs> Always the answer. <laughs> yeah, so for me, this whole idea really just vindicates the approach that Vladimir and Constantine and others have passed down to us in studying and teaching system of, you know, Constantine some years ago at a seminar down in Charlotte really emphasized the need for people to crawl a lot at the beginning of their systemic careers, just constant ground movement, ground engagement, really not using the limbs and trying to get an idea of how to control those um, smaller muscles. And he even kind of stated it to the extent that if you really wanted to train somebody to be great at systemic, then you should just make them crawl for a year, right? <laughs> for a year straight, they're just an hour crawling every day for a year. And then after that, they would start to learn systemic very, very quickly. But he said, nobody would do that. Nobody has the motivation to crawl for a year and that's it, right? right. It sounds but like one of those novels of like the, yeah. the, the, you know, the mystical martial arts teacher in the jungle. Exactly, yeah. Like, you know, spend nine years, you know, just practicing, like standing on one foot and then, yeah. then you're amazing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, um, but I can see the rationale behind it. So as on the receiving end of that, in the first instance, I was like, oh, that's a bit woo, that's a bit out there and stuff like that. But now understanding this and how the brain constructs movement, it makes perfect sense why we spend so much time crawling, why we spend so much time practicing just walking, right? Walking and breathing and coordinating movement because that's the basis on which you can hang more complex stuff. And if you're just trying to reach and run and grab at the complex movement and the complex stuff before your body's had an opportunity to acquire the blueprint and the framework to hang it off, then you're pretty much building a very tall skyscraper uh, on a very, very shaky foundation. It's going to come crashing down as soon as there's a stiff breeze or a fright. That's right. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, helping me pass this out a little bit. I hope it's been uh, interesting to you. It has been. Yeah, it's been really cool. So do you have um, any takeaways for folks, like just something to do based on this talk? Yeah, I mean, of course, you could read the book, and I'll put that in the show notes, um, a link to it. It's a little bit pricey. It's kind of rare and a bit out of print, and my copy cost me about $75, I think, from some Amazon thing, but it's well worth it, um, especially the first half of the book. It's very accessible. It's written in kind of like a popular science-y kind of way. Um, the second part is a whole bunch of neuroscientists since the 80s, um, predominantly American ones, um, commenting on things that Bernstein was theorizing about way back then and mostly validating what it was that he said. A few of them kind of go off on tangents and sort of say, well, he almost had it right. And, but given that he didn't have access to MRI scanners and things, he did pretty spectacularly well, right? all that kind of stuff. So I recommend read the book if you can. Um, on a physical sense, do everything that Vlad and Constantine and probably Systemic Instructor is, um, is asking you to do, but maybe try and do it with a bit more mindfulness and with the motivation that you're not just working out when you do those crawling exercises. You're not just 
um, making your muscles stronger, you're working on complex motor skill. You're working on that framework within your brain and within your body that's going to allow you to acquire more sustainment as you go along. And know that as you're doing that, you're acquiring more freedom in your brain as well as your body. Cool. I'll do it. Cool. Well, thanks very much for joining me, Helen. Hopefully see you next time. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. for listening. If you'd like to find out more about training at NC Sistema, you can visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. If you'd like to find out more about Sistema classes and seminars worldwide, please visit www.russianmartialart.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please take a few minutes now to give us a review on iTunes. This is probably the best way of helping us get the word out. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests and discussion topics, please contact us via www.ncsystema.com or email me directly at glenn at ncsystema.com. That's glenn with two n's at ncsystema.com. We welcome your feedback. Many thanks, good health, and see you in training.